you got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then we're going to continue in Acts chapter 18. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and then Acts chapter 18. Just so you know, tonight, don't forget, uh, tonight is the Lord's Supper, and uh, what we're going to do, just in light of what happened this uh, this last week, and uh, just something we do about two times a year, this will be what we call Lord's Supper, uh, Lord's Supper come and go, uh, and the idea is you can come in, it's a really special experience, anytime between between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. takes about 15 to 20 minutes, uh, but we will have a sheet of paper for you to walk through the Lord's Supper, read through the passages of Scripture. For some people, they say uh, when they come in to take the Lord's Supper this way, it's the first time I actually read all those passages together for myself. And so just know, come anytime between 6 and 8 p.m. tonight, uh, and you'll be able to, in an isolated setting here in this room, take the Lord's Supper on your own. It's a very, very special experience, and again, uh, very, very powerful. So that's tonight, 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, our, our deacons will be here uh, to facilitate, all right? Again, we'll start in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 57. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever won something by competing before, all right? Have you ever won something by competing before? Just show of hands real quick. Any competitive people in this room, raise your hand. Now, just for the record, you do this back where I'm from in Texas. I mean, it's a pretty competitive state, and about half the room raises their hand. I mean, it was like two thirds, maybe three-fourths of the room that raised here. We are competitive because you have to be competitive to stay here. And you non-competitive people, God bless you. We stick up for you. You know what I mean? We want to defend you and take care of you. Uh, but I'm telling you, there's something about this city uh, and a spirit of competition. So uh, I'd never really thought of myself as a competitive person when I was a child, uh, but then something happened. When I was in the uh, seventh grade, I always wanted to play football. My parents uh, decided that uh, they didn't want me to learn bad tackling habits. This is a hashtag Texas problems, all right? They didn't want me to have bad tackling habits. And so um, I was not allowed to play football uh, on any type of organized level until I reached uh, junior high, which for us was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And so I'll never forget, um, seventh grade year, I'm getting to play football for the first time. And instead of, this was a good idea, instead of dividing it A team and B team, there were so many students that wanted to play football. My seventh grade class had 119 people in our footballs, in our football program. And so it was too big for us just to have one team. And so what they decided to do is they took the entire group and they divided it into, into what they called the strong team and the quick team. They divided it, the midpoint was based on weight. And so if you weighed a certain amount, you were on the strong team. If you weighed another certain amount, you were on what they called the quick team. Now, just before we get into the debate on whether that was a good idea or not, uh, for me, it was great because I fell right there in the middle, and that meant that I got to be the biggest guy on the quick team. Back in those days, I was a cool 145 pounds, all right? There you go. I was truly half the man I am now. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not quite 290. Anyway, all that to say on the quick team, and I got to start on the quick team. But one day we went out and scrimmaged the strong team. If you have all the small people, no matter how fast they are, and you play them and pit them against the group that is bigger and stronger than they are. Muscle mass, again, muscle weighs more than fat, and I'm telling you, those the strong team, it was a completely different game. And I remember in seventh grade when we scrimmaged them, I was getting to start on the quick team, but on that strong team, when we scrimmaged them, I thought to myself, man, I want to start on varsity one day. 
That's my goal. And then uh, at that time, I was kind of midway as far as height went, again, midway as far as weight went. And then uh, all of a sudden, I began to realize how genetics worked. My father was exactly six feet tall. And my mother, if you guys have met her, is four feet 11 and three quarters inches tall. And so I split the difference. Here I am. I'm about five nine. All right. Five nine, maybe five nine and a half in these cool, tall shoes that I'm wearing today. So here's what happened. Back then, I made the decision. I was going to do the best I could to try to one day start. They put our teams together in ninth grade, divided us A team and B team. I started off on the B team, but I was the one player in our junior high group that worked my way up from the B team at the beginning of the season, and I got to be on the A team at the end of the season. I think I got about eight total plays on the varsity A team uh, back, uh, back in those days. And so, again, it was a big deal, but I still was working towards that goal. My junior year uh, was one of the juniors to make varsity. Uh, my junior year after being on JV, my sophomore year, and uh, didn't play a whole lot, but I got to start on special teams, but I wanted so badly to start uh, at uh, linebacker. That was the position that I played. And then finally, my senior year, through injuries, through guys quitting the team because we had a really bad record, the final two games of my senior year, I started linebacker at Monterey High School. Thank you. Thank you. Hold your applause, please. Hold your applause. I share that to say this to you. You may not understand it. For any of you who played athletics, may you understand. To work your way up, to truly have that goal and to see it met, that, simple, that sense of accomplishment is unparalleled because you set the goal, you put in the time. It was getting up at 5 a.m. to lift weights. It was running through the summer. We had a park that I ran around multiple times uh, at, during the summertime just trying to get in shape and trying to be ready uh, so that I was ready for that moment. And then to have it culminate, even though it was just two games at the end of my senior year, that sense of accomplishment was just so powerful. That rests in all of us. But for us competitive people, I'm telling you, that sense of accomplishment is so powerful. Now listen, there are certain things that God has called us to compete in. But the passage of Scripture we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that your eternity is not anything that you are able to compete for. Look at what it says. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57. There is no sense of accomplishment we can get by the way we've lived. Look at what it says. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. Underline and highlight that word gives and the word victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there for just a minute. As great as that sense of accomplishment is when we achieve something, you have to remember when it comes to your eternity, there's nothing you could ever do on your own to earn God's favor. But Jesus has already done it. He's the only one that could. Jesus has completed the race for us. He's completed the competition for us. And he gives us the victory. He hands it over to us. And through him, we are able to have hope. Is competition a bad thing? No, not at all. But when it comes to your eternity, you got to know God gives it to us, and he does it through the shed blood of Jesus. If you're taking notes, write this down. The enemy wants us to forget that the game is over. 
The enemy wants us to forget that the game is over. For those of you who have that beautiful experience of being able to achieve something through competition, through trying to get stronger, through trying to get better, through trying to achieve something, when it comes to eternity, the enemy wants us to think that the game is still going and that you can still achieve through your effort, eternity with God in heaven. Can I tell you why that's such a wicked lie of the devil? Because all of a sudden, when we screw up, and we all screw up, when we screw up, it causes our faith to go into a tailspin because we begin to think, if I've done this, then God will be angry with me, and what if he chooses to withhold his blessing? No. We find in 1 Corinthians 15, God gives us the victory through Jesus. Sin, past, present, and future is covered through his shed blood for those who believe. The enemy wants us to believe that lie that the game is not over when the truth is it's complete. Have you ever watched golf before? I love watching these big golf matches, any of these PGA Tour events. I um, had a, a guy that uh, I discipled years ago that uh, I was trying to connect with him. I'd never really watched golf before. We never had the money to play golf, and so um, I just had never done that. Some of you guys who play golf, I think it's awesome. It's a very expensive hobby, isn't it? Uh, all that to say, um, i never forget... Um, PGA, watching PGA events, trying to connect with this guy, and uh, it always struck me. They finish the round, but the game isn't over until you turn in the scorecard. The round's been shot, but back in those days, that's when Tiger Woods was still playing, and man, I'm telling you, Tiger had just won this event. He does the big shot. The crowd cheers around him, but they don't hand him the trophy. Instead, the cameras are all running after him as he's walking to the clubhouse with the card in his hand because the round isn't over until he hands the card over. Here's what's so interesting about eternity. The round has been shot. The holes have been made. The game is over, but the card has to be turned in in order for the score to count. And it was so interesting because I was studying this passage today, or studying this passage this week, I kept thinking to myself, that's what Christ does for us. He shot the round, he's won, and all we have to do is turn in the card. That's the act of faith that we have. The game is over. The round has been shot. Jesus has done the work, but we got to turn in that card pledge our faith to him, and then we truly are able to walk in victory. So it begs the question today, what lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory? What lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory? There are some of you listening to this message today, and for you, you've been a believer in Jesus Christ a long time, but lately, the enemy has been eating your lunch because you started listening to the hateful things he's been whispering in your ear. I want to remind you, we are given the victory. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. It is given to us by and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And those lies, those lies keep you from walking tall in your faith and being as effective as you possibly could be. If you are a person in here who believed in Jesus as a young person... Most, uh, just by default, the bulk of your sin has been committed after you came to Christ. You ever thought of that before? The bulk of your sin has happened since you've been a believer. The devil wants to whisper in your ear that you've screwed this up, that you've messed it up, and that you can never earn it back. What we have to do is come to realization, just like Paul in the passage we're going to read today, it cannot be taken from you. 
Once you are in the palm of Almighty God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done, past, present, or future, it has no power over you. And I want to prove it to you today. Are you ready? Now flip over to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 9, continuing our story of Paul as he's planting that church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, and we're going to jump in today addressing that question. What lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory? I love this, by the way, if your Bibles have red letters when Jesus is speaking. Um, it's so interesting because in the book of Acts, there's only a couple of spots where you'll see red letters in the midst of the passages. This is one of those spots where Jesus himself is credited with speaking the words here to Paul. Are you ready for this? Look at Acts 18, and we're going to start in verse Verse 9. The lead up to this, remember, is Paul has been abused in the synagogue there in Corinth. He's basically been thrown out of the church, and then all of a sudden, he goes next door, and people from that synagogue go with him right next door, and he sees amazing things happen, uh, and the church get planted there in Corinth. So look at what happens. Paul's very discouraged when verse 9 starts. Even though he's experienced great victory, he's been through a lot at this point. Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Stop right there for just a minute. I love that it says one random night that ends up with this incredible uh, description from Jesus on how Paul should keep going. If you're taking notes, write this down. What lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory? Number one is you should give up. The enemy loves to whisper that. You should give up. Have you ever thought of this before? If you've already won, if the scorecard is in your hand and all you've got to do is turn it in and claim the victory, what is the only play the enemy has to try to get you to not turn in the scorecard? That's the only way the person in second place at that point has any shot at shooting a better round. They've already lost. They just need to get you to back off and not turn in your card. You know what? You should give up. Paul going into Acts 18, remember... He and Barnabas had parted ways. Barnabas had been his security blanket on the first missionary journey, his best friend. They end up parting ways over theology, and truly, Barnabas had things he was called to. Paul had things he was called to. But I can just tell you, as one who's lost my best friend at different points in my life, it hurts, doesn't it? When somebody looks at you and you got to go separate ways, you walk a bit wounded. In my case, it was about three years I walked wounded after I lost one of my best friends. Paul's experienced that difficulty, and you know at that point, the enemy starts whispering in his ears, you should just give up. You should just give up. Without Barnabas, you're never going to be as effective as you were. You should just give up. He then goes and plants that Riverside Christian Church of Philippi. What happens in Philippi? Remember the beautiful story in Acts 16 where we get our verse, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. That's in the midst of Paul being in prison and asked to leave the city or they're going to try to put him in prison again. He's been rejected at Philippi. He gets run out of Thessalonica. He gets run out of Berea. He gets sneered at in Athens in the passage we studied about in Acts 17. And then he gets abused at the church in Corinth. Goes next door, plants a new church. But all of a sudden, here he is, Paul. When we lead into Acts 18, 9, Paul has some pretty serious baggage. You ever stop to look back on your life? And you go, man, I feel like I'm just getting beat up 
over and over and over again, even though in the wake of Paul's life, he's seen churches planted in places where there had not been a Christian church before. But there had to be a point after the abuse that he had endured in Corinth when he starts to look back and go, you know what, am I really making a difference? Is it really worth it? And the enemy whispers, just give up. Just give up. You're never going to win. Just give up. It was such a heavy moment for Paul that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I didn't build you to be silent. I didn't build you to give up. If you're taking notes, write this down. The only hope a loser has when the competition is complete is that the winner would choose to forfeit. I say that again. The only hope a loser has when the competition is complete is that the winner would choose to forfeit. That is the only hope the devil has. Greater is he that's in me than any power that's in this world. That means the devil can't beat you. He can only distract and discourage you and get you to not turn in your card, get you to not turn in the victory that's already been achieved for you. Some of you desperately needed to hear that truth today. Don't give up. It's a lie straight from the pits of hell that there's still time on the clock. Jesus won. We just need to turn in the card. So back when I was growing up, I grew up in the golden age of basketball. Um, was uh, about uh, 10 years old when the Bulls went on their championship run. And so that meant I got to experience, for you Michiganders out there, all right, that means I got to experience the Pistons' domination. I got to experience early on the Celtics' domination, and then got to experience again the Lakers' domination, and then all that fun stuff. But I really grew up in the era uh, where Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were just winning everything. And so uh, I'm telling you, it was a really fun time to watch and to start to get into basketball. And so uh, my buddy Jonathan and I, started collecting basketball cards together. And so we would go in together to the card shop and we would always buy, there was a brand called Skybox back in the day. We'd go and buy these Skybox cards together. They were the ones that kind of had the highest return for the lowest level of value. You could buy the really expensive cards, but we couldn't afford those. Our allowance was like five bucks a week. All right. And so we'd go in, you'd save your money and you end up getting to buy two or three packs of basketball cards. Well, when you're only buying two or three packs at a time, okay, one of us was going to get the better cards. And if you got the Michael Jordan card, you were the winner for the day. So we would go and we would buy these cards together, but whoever got the Michael Jordan card was the winner. And this inevitably was the way it always went right after our trip to the card shop. The person who got the Michael Jordan card would freak out, be so excited, and then in the car with our moms driving back home, the one would look over at the other and be like, hey... I'll give you every card I got for that Michael Jordan. Can we make that trade? And here's the deal. Every kid, even though they were 10 years old, knew you didn't make that trade, right? It didn't matter if they offered you every card in their collection. If you had the Michael Jordan card, which I still have some of them to this day, if you got that Michael Jordan card, you did not trade it because every other card in that box was worth what that card was worth. It's the same way with the devil. He looks at you and goes, man, what you're doing is not really working, is it? You can have all these other Skybox cards if you'll just hand me your Michael Jordan. If you'll just give me your faith if you just bow your knee before me, if you'll just admit that you have doubts, we got to come to a point where we realize he is the loser. We are not the loser. He is the loser. And we have to trust the Lord. 
Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 8. Save your spot there in Acts 18 and flip over to Romans chapter 8. Some of my favorite verses. And if you're an individual who's discouraged today, these are verses that you should read over and over and over again. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. Here's what it says. Paul says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not uh, also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will, be, who will, bring, against, uh, who will bring any charge against those who, uh, whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies those uh, who is it that he condemns. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he who was raised to life is at the right hand and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor in the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Paul comes back and says, when you start to think about it, man, if God is for us, who can be against us? The round has been shot. We just got to turn in the card. He comes back and says, when you really think about it, can anything separate us from the God who created the universe and loved us so much to send his son? He then comes in and gives this really cool picture. He says, can anything high or low, height or depth, can angels or demons can famine or the sword? Is there anything that can separate us? Notice what he's saying there. There is nothing you could do that's so good you could overshoot God, and there's nothing you could do that's so bad that you would lose favor from God. The shed blood of Jesus Christ covers everything, our very best to our absolute stinkiest worst. The devil whispers in our ears, you should give up. Of course he says that. It's the only play he's got left. It begs the question, are you living like you lost? Are you living like you lost? For some of you believers, it's time to walk in victory. Stop carrying the guilt that you couldn't earn your salvation. What a weird concept. Stop carrying the guilt that you, can earn, that you can't earn your salvation. There's some of you, the ones who struggle with this are usually really, really kind people. You're the ones that want to do the very best you can. You truly realize the heaviness of the weight of what God has given you in forgiveness, but you still have this twinge of, I could still earn God's favor. Maybe I can pay him back if I work hard enough. You can't earn it. It's impossible. There's nothing you could do. It's a free gift that God has given. You ever had survivor's guilt before on anything? I've just got a feeling as a sociologist, my degree is sociology. I think once we get to the deep wake of COVID, I do think that there will be a bit of a wave of survivor's guilt that we all have to deal with. I got to come and plant church here in D.C., and the year that we came, across all denominations, there were about 15 churches that were attempted to be planted when we moved here seven years ago. We were one of the only ones to make it. And this was about four years ago when the first churches that came out here, their pastors and leaders started to leave. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was so weird, but I felt guilt 
that we made it. These were individuals, in some cases, I'm just being honest, they were way more spiritual than I am. They were way smarter. In every case, they were way smarter. (laughs) And I'd come in and tell Autumn, I'm crying, and I don't know why. I'd talk with these leaders, I'd talk with these pastors, and I'd say, I'm crying, and I don't know why. She said, do you feel bad that we made it? I said, no, but yes. She said, why do you feel bad? I said, because I know we didn't earn this. God gave it. God chose to bless us that our church might live. Now listen to me. When it comes to your salvation, God chose to bless you with the shed blood of his son Jesus. And that's why we have hope. Not because of anything you've done. Not because you were the most spiritual, you were the smartest. He blessed you because he chose to bless you. What a beautiful picture of the Father. And God doesn't do anything without truly thinking it through. He loved you so much that he sent his son. There's a point where the devil wants to whisper and cheapen it. Just give up. You can never earn it. It's a half truth. He's right. You could never earn it. But the truth is you don't have to. Jesus earned it for us. Let's keep going. Look at what happens next. Acts chapter 18, verse 10. Starts in verse 9 again. It says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Here's the next lie of the devil Jesus shoots down. Verse 10, for I am with you. Underline, I am with you. No one is going to attack you because I have many people in this city. Underline, because I have many people in this city. What another beautiful thing for Jesus to remind Paul that he is not alone. Even though he's founding the first Christian church in Corinth, God says to him, I got many people. Jesus says, I have many people already in this city. If you're taking notes, what lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory number one you should give up and number two that you are alone he loves to whisper that you are alone he loves to whisper that you are all by yourself even with paul founding the christian church in corinth the whisper of the devil is you're all by yourself god comes back and says again the powerful words here of jesus I'm with you. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. I've got many people in this city. You are not alone. You are not by yourself. If you don't write down anything else today, I hope you take this. Are you ready? The enemy's most effective lie is to remind us the weight of our sin without the presence of Jesus. Let me say that again. Again, if you don't write anything else down, take this today. The enemy's most effective lie is to remind us of the weight of our sin without the presence of Jesus. It's a half-truth that he puts on us, that your sin is wicked, that your sin keeps you from God. It's a half-truth. There's nothing you could ever do to pay off your sin on your own. But through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are made holy. We are made whole. I still to this day have a nightmare, and it's the same one. I feel like the enemy's tried to get at me with different nightmares over the years. This is the one that has stuck, okay? Have you ever had the nightmare that you're all alone? It comes in different forms. Um, the enemy tried to hit me with, with the, the nightmare of, uh, 
of me having to preach. Sometimes pre- young preachers have this nightmare that you haven't had anything prepared and all of a sudden you have to walk up and preach a 40-minute message, right? And so just on no notice, you have to walk up. I've preached long enough now, I can do that. And so anyway, all that to say, that dream doesn't mess with me anymore uh, because again, I'm, I'm able to do it. I don't suggest it, all right? But, uh, but again, uh, it's not as good a message, but I can do it at this point. Scripture says, be prepared in season and out of season to preach the good word that is in you. The nightmare that I have repeatedly, even to this day, is I am waiting tables at Red Lobster, all right? The finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster, where I worked for four and a half years. I'm waiting tables at Red Lobster, and I walk in, and the entire restaurant is full of tables. They've been sitting there for 30 minutes, and the manager says, I'm so sorry, no one else is coming into work. You've got to take care of every table. And so I'm telling you, if you've ever waited tables before, that is the nightmare that all of us have, which is so bizarre. Even now, this is almost... 15, 20 years later, I still have that same nightmare that I walk in and I've got to take care of all those tables. Well, not 15 to 20, 22 years since I, since I started waiting tables. All that to say, I run around, I can't please anybody, and the worst part is I'm all by myself. The devil wants us to feel that way. He wants us to feel like we're all alone. Jesus himself says to Paul, don't stop speaking, don't give up. But remember, I'm with you always. I'm with you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Can I tell you why that's important? What had just happened to Paul next door in Corinth? They abused him. They beat him up. That word that's used there does not just mean verbally. It means on every level. They physically, emotionally, and spiritually hurt him. And he has to go and walk past that synagogue to get to the church that he's planted right next door. Jesus says to him, I'm with you. No one's going to hurt you. That lie of the devil is that you're all by yourself. Did you ever see the movie Braveheart? Great little movie if you get a chance to watch it. William Wallace, his story, all right? If you've ever watched Braveheart, there's a beautiful scene. Maybe the best part of Mel Gibson's acting in that whole movie is the moment when they've got the English on the run, and do you remember? It's the scene where they're fighting in, and he tells one of the other leaders, meet me in the middle. I'll go in, I'll lead the charge, but you bring in the cavalry, hit them from the side, and meet me in the middle. And the other military leader has cut a deal with the king, and so has one of the other military leaders, and so nobody's coming to help. But William Wallace doesn't know it until this moment. You got to go back and watch it. The way that Mel Gibson does his eyes, that's why he won the Oscar. All of a sudden, he's fighting and he turns, waves the flag so that the next group will come in and you watch it. They turn and they leave. And Mel Gibson, they focus on his eyes and it's like, dun, 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 right? That moment of realization, I'm all alone in the middle of the battle. Can I tell you some good news today? That is not you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you hear me? That is not you. That's the nightmare the devil would like you to have. But that is not you. Jesus says to Paul, I'm with you. No one's going to hurt you. I realize you've been through a lot. No one's going to hurt you. I'm with you. And by the way, I've got many people in this city. You're not going to be alone. 
It begs the question, have you been tricked into choosing isolation? Have you been tricked into choosing isolation? If the devil can get you to believe you're all alone, then in a lot of cases we set up our lives so that we will be. I want to encourage you, don't believe his lies. He's been speaking the same ones since the beginning. And now let's look at verse 11 and we'll call it a day. Here's what it says. Again, first of all, what lies does the enemy whisper to keep us from walking in victory? Number one, you should give up. Number two, you're all alone. And then number three, we find here in verse 11. It says, so Paul stayed, look at this, for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Underline a year and a half teaching them the word of God. On the second missionary journey, that is by far the longest amount of time Paul's gotten to spend in one spot. The devil wanted him discouraged because he was about to have a stretch of incredible effectiveness. So after Paul being discouraged, after Jesus saying to him, don't give up, after him saying to him, you're not alone, I have many people in this city, Paul then is faced with, does he listen to the words of Jesus to his heart, or does he listen to the words of fear that are stirring in his mind that have been whispered by the enemy? Paul chooses to not run and to stay and to be a part of what God is doing. If you're taking notes, and this is the funniest lie of the enemy, you ready for this? What lies does the enemy whisper? to keep us from walking in victory. Number three, you better run. You better run. The enemy loves to whisper in our ear, you better run. What is the option against running away? That we stay and fight? Or even just this, that we just stay? Sometimes you don't have to even fight. You just have to stand your ground and not allow him to chase you in fear. Fight the fear and listen to what the Spirit's saying to your heart. Now, just for the record, there are times when God tells you to go. There are not times other than when we are fighting against sin when he tells us to run. To run from the devil is not the command. To run from sin is the command that's given to us in the epistle to Timothy. Run from sin. Don't run from the devil. He's the one who better stink and run. If you're taking notes, write this down. Avoid giving time and energy to idle threats. Avoid giving time and energy to idle threats. I've told you this before, but the way that we work here in D.C., you better run is where something happens and we get so stirred up and worry about it that all of a sudden the fear in our brain begins to transcend the power of God working in our heart, in our spirit, and all of a sudden we start to go, maybe I should go, maybe it's time for me to go, I got to cash out while it's high, I got to make sure that I get out while it's still good, I got to figure this out, and all of a sudden before you know it, we are running, running, running in a situation where we should just stay put and calm, stinking down. You ever seen a puffer fish before? What's the puffer fish do when it wants, when it feels scared or nervous? <gasps> Puffs up big. You ever watched a puffer fish? They don't actually hurt any of the other fish. They puff up big, but they don't have any power. That's what the enemy does to us. <laughs> you better run. You better run. I got to work on a, a black bear habitat uh, one summer. I tell you, I have weird, I've lived a weird life, kids. <laughs> My senior year in college. Worked in New York State. There's a black bear habitat right at the crossroads of Pennsylvania, New York, and, uh, and uh, New Jersey. Montague, New Jersey is the closest place out there, Pastor Wayne. Uh, and Milford, Pennsylvania was the biggest town in that area. We go out there. I have no experience. We lived in dirt floor teepees for the summer. It's a true story. 
lived in dirt four teepees and worked with inner city kids from Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, and Manhattan uh, that had a history of violent behavior. Now, they were young kids, but still, it was very intense. We lived in these dirt four teepees with an organization called Trailblazers, started by Teddy Roosevelt way, way back in the day. And uh, anyway, they take us out in the woods, and Teddy Roosevelt's deal was you cannot take the violence, the inner city violence, out of a child until you take the child out of the inner city. And so we went and worked at this program. Um, it was an amazing experience, but on a black bear habitat, and I had no experience with bears. And I am the leader of this group of 10-year-olds living out in the woods. And so I'll never forget, we went to a class called bear training. Okay, it might as well have been called bear minimum, all right? Okay, we go to this bear training class where they taught us how to scare away the bears that we were told would be at our campsite at least two or three times a week. That was a conservative estimate. It came often. And here's the deal. They said, you just got to know the black bear is bigger and stronger than you, but they are very afraid of you. And I went, really? Really? They said, all you have to do is grab your pot that we had there for the cooking, grab the wooden spoon, and lift them up over our heads and beat them as loud as we could. They said, what you're trying to do is make yourself look really big and the loud noise will scare the bear off. Now, just for the record, you hear that in training and at the place that we were at, no one had ever been mauled by a bear and it had been started again more than 100 years before. And so it's one thing to go through the training. It's another when you're staring eye to eye with that black bear, that black mountain bear there in the midst of the wilderness where there is no telephone service. And so I'm telling you, the moment that I see that bear, what do I do? I make myself big. I get the kids to start yelling and I start banging those pots and pans. And every time the bear stops, looks, and then runs off in the opposite direction. But that bear, over and over again, thought that we were a threat that was bigger than he was. And I'm telling you, that's the same thing that the enemy does to us. He looks at us and he wants us to feel like we are inferior, even though we are much bigger and stronger through Jesus Christ than he ever could be. One last little verse here. Look at Psalm 46, and let's read verses 1 through 7. Psalmist writes a beautiful picture for us of standing our ground. Psalm 46, and now let's look at verses 1 through 7. Y'all didn't know I lived on that habitat, did you? Psalm 46, verses 1 through 7. Last verses and we'll close. Look at this. It says, God is our refuge. Underline and highlight our refuge. God is our refuge and strength. I love this, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Underline and highlight ever-present. Notice you got there not alone and also that we don't have to run. We can hide in him. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, look at this, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Through its, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, and the earth melts. 
The Lord Almighty is with us. There's your first part. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Underline fortress. I love that the psalmist here between verse 1 and 7 starts it with refuge and ends it with fortress. We don't have to run. You run from sin. You don't run from Satan. Do you hear me? You run from sin. You don't run from Satan. If he is whispering in your ear, you better run. Don't let fear be the reason you start moving. Let the word of God directing you be how you start moving. It begs our final question today. Are you running from a powerless threat? Are you running from a powerless threat? One last movie example, we'll call it a day. So my favorite movie of all time, some of you may know this already, is a movie called Tombstone, all right? Great movie. It's my absolute favorite. It has been since I, since I watched it for the first or second time. Absolutely great movie. The movie centers around the shootout at the OK Corral. If you've ever studied the story of Wyatt Earp before, centers around the shootout at the OK Corral. And I'm telling you, there's a group of, they're called the Cowboys. It's this gang that's taken over the town. And uh, the city government's kind of in, in cahoots with them. And it's just a terrible situation. They're causing people all kinds of trouble. People are needlessly being killed. And finally, the Earp brothers get together and they go, you know what? We're sick of this. And with the help of Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer, they show up at the OK Corral. And there's a shootout that takes place where the cowboys are basically run out of town at that point. But... The city official who's been in cahoots with the gang, do you remember the scene? The city official, after the shooting is done and he's been hiding underneath the side of the building, didn't even get into the fray. After it's over, he runs out, his name's Sheriff Behan. Behan jumps out and he goes, that's it. You're all under arrest and says that to the Arabs who basically have just defended and protected the town. That's it. You're all under arrest. And Val Kilmer stops with his eyes squinted just like this. And he goes, I don't think I'll let you arrest us today, Behan. And they turn and they walk off. It's like, dang, right? Great moment. The devil comes out and says, that's it. You're all under arrest. It's all falling apart. That's it. You got to get out of here. You got to get moving. You better run. We've got to have the courage turn around, squint our eyes, and remember who it is that stands behind us, who goes before us, who is with us. And you look him in the eye and go, I don't think I'll let you chase me out of town today, b Not today, Satan, right? I'm not going to let you chase me out of town today. And then we got to turn and go about the Father's business. I hope this was motivational to you today. Stop listening to the devil's lies. They're wicked and powerless, and sometimes we just need to remember that. Thanks for listening. Let's bow our heads for prayer.